What's happening, everybody? Welcome to a Wednesday edition of Texans All Access from the Hyundai Texans Radio Studio. I'm your host, John Harris, football analyst, sideline reporter for your Houston Texans. Glad to be with you. Plenty to do as we get ready for the Denver Broncos. It's also my cause, my cleats week, and the slant this week. We'll focus on that a little bit with Neville Hewitt. So we'll have Neville after a little bit, we're going to go behind enemy sidelines with Nick Ferguson, former Texan, former Bronco. He knows the Broncos inside and out. Drew Doherty caught up with him. Then we're going to take a little bit, not so much a detour, but we're going to talk some college football. My man David Fletcher, executive director of the Tax Act Texas Bowl. On Sunday, he is going to make the call for who is coming to this game. He's got the, he's got the pick of the Big 12, but then the SEC picks the team for here now my gut tells me k-state v a&m that's what i'm going with but could be different uh but fletch will pick on the big 12 side and then the sec will pick for the bowl game on the sec side so that's gonna be one heck of a game and then dave logan the play-by-play voice and as mark emailed me said the most interesting man in play-by-play dave logan is definitely one of those guys so dave logan will go and join mark vandermeer and our men behind the mics so we had a lot to do but every wednesday you know we catch up with executive vice president of football ops and general manager of your houston texans nick casario we have a blast talking about everything basically but we look back at the game we get the scouting report and then it turned Two Christmas songs. Yes, you heard me. You want to stay tuned for that. To me, Mark, and Nick. Let's go. All right, with us now in the Hyundai Texans Radio Studio, it's Executive Vice President and General Manager Nick Casario. Nick, great to see you. How's it going? Fellas, good to be here. All right, great to have you with us. Big week against the Denver Broncos coming up on Sunday. And let's reflect a little bit coming off the loss to Jacksonville. Oh, so close yet so far, Nick. You saw some good things, but not quite enough at the end. A game of inches. Yeah, in the end, didn't make enough plays. Jackson made a few more than we did. Had our opportunities. Uh, kind of got by the eight ball there a little bit, you know, starting slow. We just started the game too slowly, down 10 nothing, made it 10-7. Then it went back and forth there. We scored there in the second half, go up 14-13, and they got, you know, a bunch of big plays or big plays, and they touched down two-point, and then it kind of went back and forth there a little bit until the end. So had our chances, didn't capitalize. I mean, really a big thing, I'd say, defensively, were just the explosive plays. You know, anytime you give up four 40-plus pass plays, those eventually cut the field in half for the opponent. So um, certainly things that we can improve on and do, and do better. Um, be some different challenges this week against Denver. Um, but, you know, Jacksonville's a good team. We kind of came up short a little bit in the end, and now it's time to move on to the next uh, next challenge. Nick, it was a heck of a football game, and I don't know if there was a specific difference as you saw it, but did you see a specific difference in what was the key for Jacksonville getting the win? I mean, they did a good job stopping Devin, and Devin's been really good running the ball lately. What did you think was kind of the biggest key to it? Yeah, they played well. They executed. I mean, their defensive front, which we had talked about going into the game, you know, we knew was one of the strengths of their team, and that certainly came to fruition there a little bit, and they did a good job. I mean, Josh Allen's a great player. Uh, he's been a good player for a long time and had one of his better games. So I'd say they were probably a little bit more, you know, ready to go than we were initially, and by the time we kind of got our feet underneath us, it was probably a little bit too late. Yeah. But Jacksonville's a good team. They're leading division for a reason. So, um, you know, in the end, just came up a little bit short. 
They had that one loss in the run since the Texans beat them earlier this year, but they were a pretty hot team, Nick. And what does it say about the Texans that you got that close on a day where you really didn't play your best football at all? Yeah, I mean, we feel we have a good football team. We haven't always played maybe as well as we would have hoped or wanted to, but you know, we feel that you know we can compete with the number of teams in the league on a week-to-week basis. And really, it comes down to your individual performance, how you execute. Um, D'Amico's talked about this with the with the team a little bit. In the end, it's about us and what we do and getting some things fixed on our end. And if we do those things, then we'll give ourselves an opportunity to put ourselves in a better position in games. So um, certainly have another challenge this week in front of us. Denver's a good team. I mean, they've won five straight, so they're probably playing as good as any team in the league. So we feel like we can compete with a number of teams. In the end, it comes down to how well we execute um, critical situations and the game, all the things that go into winning football. Nick, I'm asking you a question. I know people will hear and go, uh, I'll ask a question the way I'm thinking about it. Each and every week, do you guys submit plays to the league, whether it's a penalty called or not, or something that you saw or not? What's kind of the process for you and the team to submit things to the league to say, hey, these are things that need to be looked at, or hey, this is something that probably wasn't right? How do you kind of go about that process each and every week? Yeah, there's always plays and games that could go either way. I think from a from our perspective, from a club perspective, it's just getting clarity about how it was called, what's the interpretation, so we can utilize that information right. and impart that to the players. So we'll go back and we'll review the game. Um, coaches may have some questions about some plays. What did they see on this play? So then the, the goal is to try to learn and try to have an understanding right. of what's being called, how things are being played, so then we can get that information to the team and tell them, all right, this is either a point of emphasis or here's something technique-wise that we can improve. Here's why you know a situation or a, a penalty may have been called. So a lot of it is, is educational more than anything else. I mean, the game happens so quickly, it's hard to, in the blink of an eye, really see. I think the big things, all teams, and not just specific to the Texans, Everybody just wants consistency, you know, across crews, whatever is being called. You just want consistency so that week to week, you're just not wondering what's going to happen or which way it's going to go. So league has a hard job, but ultimately the officials have to make the calls that they feel are appropriate. And if a club has a question, there's a process you should go through and just try to get the information, try to educate yourself and have an understanding and then just move on to the next set of plays and set of circumstances. I know the officials come in at training camp and show you what the points of emphasis are and rule changes, things like that. Are they proactive during the season of here's how it's going around the league? Check this out. What can you tell us about that sort of thing? The, they'll send teams plays. Um, mm-hmm. Here's some things that popped up because they do the same thing. They go back and review the officials. They review the game. Here was a call, whether it's a player safety issue, whether it's a technique issue, how to do it the right way. Here's a good example. So they do a good job on their end of providing information and video clips to the team so that you can review what happened that say where there's a little bit of consternation is if something is called a foul or vice versa, not called a foul in the game, then a player gets fined. Then they're kind of wondering, Hey, what happened? So it works both ways. So in the end, you're just trying to get some clarity and some consistency about how a game is going to be officiated and called. Nick Denzel comes back this week. What are kind of the, the, not what's going to happen, but how, what, how's that process? Is it any different with a guy coming off suspension? Is the process any different? Because I remember the, the, uh, the transaction report came out. It mentioned a two-day exemption. Can you kind of talk us through that process for Denzel? 
Yeah, it, it's pretty straightforward. Forever long a player is going to be out on the back end of it, you get that many days where the player doesn't count on the 53-man roster. Gotcha. So it just gives the ability where if you have to massage the roster or gotcha. make a transaction or something like that. So it kind of gives you a little bit of flexibility when a player comes back off a of reserve. So Denzel will be back on the roster here, I'd say, by Wednesday, yeah. more than likely. So the period expires. So the league kind of gives you a little bit of grace. You have a couple of days to kind of figure out what you need to do. Gotcha. How difficult is it to determine, all right, who are we going to bring back from IR and all the practice squad elevations you have week to week? There are a lot of moving pieces that go into the 46, 47, 48 that play on game day. No, massive dialogue and discussion. I don't want to say daily, but daily. So you're trying to anticipate, you know, what's on the horizon, who's coming back, when are they actually available, what's the prognosis from an injury standpoint, are they going to be available to play? With the IR rules specifically, you get eight players that you can return and that actually activate. So um, we're at seven um, with Juice coming back last week. So we have one spot essentially that's available for that, I would say, component there. But they're very fluid, Mark. I mean, it's something that we mm -hmm. talk about, I'd say, fairly regularly. As a matter of fact, we talked about it here today. All right, here's what we need to do. Here's some players that may have to come off the roster to get this player on the roster. So then it comes to the expense of something else. So it's constant dialogue and it's very fluid. And you just try to maintain a clear head and you really take out what happened in individual games, sort of take the emotion out and just make it a little bit more process driven. And then hopefully you get to a good endpoint. So the evolution of this IR was nobody. And then what was it, one or two or yep. three or something? And mm -hmm. now we're at eight. Are yeah. we going to go to 10, 12, Nick? <laughs> I know you'd like that this year, yeah. maybe. Those will be discussed in the spring. I'm sure everybody will have married opinions on that. So whatever the rules are, we'll be in compliance, and then we'll adjust accordingly. Nick, okay. you mentioned you mentioned Juice earlier. For you, getting an opportunity to see someone you, you, know, you drafted, how exciting is it to see them up close in a regular season game? And how did you think Juice fared his first game against a pretty good front? Yeah, anytime a player gets an opportunity to play, I think you're excited for that player. Uh, Juice put himself in a position there at the end of training camp where he was more than likely going to be the starting center, and then he gets hurt in the New Orleans game. And then he's had a pretty extended period of time here where he was out, but worked really hard, had a good attitude, put himself in a position where physically he was ready to go. And we weren't really sure if, in fact, he was going to play in this game. He was at the game. He was active, probably as sort of the next inside player. And come to find out, as a result, after 14, 15 plays, he had to go in there and play maybe a little bit more than we anticipated. Um, he went in there and, say, certainly held his own. But Juice is a smart kid. He's very tough. He's instinctive. He's athletic. He's got good playing strength. Had a good week of practice. There's going to be some things that you just haven't done in a while sure. because there's only so many things you can simulate in practice. And then when you get in the actual game, it's just a different yep. speed. But uh, he went in there and, you know, did a nice job and, you know, probably have another opportunity here this week. And hopefully he can continue to grow in his confidence. And I think the one thing he showed, he has some position flexibility between center to guard. So which just enhances the overall value of your offensive line, which we've discussed on this show, you know, at different points. Yeah, you can play center or guard. You have Titus who can play tackle or guard. Nick, for the listeners and viewers, we have Wade Smith, a Texans legend. He played center, guard, tackle. Some guys can do it all. Some guys more one position. What goes into all of that? Yeah, it's a great question. I'd say every player is a little bit different. And really what you're trying to figure out, certain players can handle more than others for whatever the reason. So say the three inside spots, there's a lot of similarities, a lot of commonalities. I'd say the biggest difference is the people that can actually put their hand on the ball 
and actually snap the football and then play the position. Everything goes along with it. So there's some guard only, some center only. There's players, like you mentioned, Mark, can have three position flexibility inside. Some inside players can play outside. Some outside players can play inside. Sometimes you'll see that at the collegiate level where they mm -hmm. actually play multiple spots. I think there's always a tendency to say, well, this player played tackle. He's a little bit undersized, so he automatically moves inside to play guard. And I think you have to be careful of that. Yeah. Say there's been examples. Kelvin Beecham is probably a good example who's had 12, 13, four, however long he's played. A little bit undersized relative to tackle, but he's a better tackle than he is an inside player. So you just try to figure out what does the player do well, put him in that position. Uh, going back to my experience in New England with Matt Light, Matt played left tackle. He was maybe a little bit undersized for tackle standards. Tried him at right tackle, that didn't work. He really wasn't an inside player, and then come to find out he's a really good left tackle, so he just played left tackle for 10, 11 years. So sometimes you can be a little bit cute with it. Some players can handle the transition, so it's all specific to the individual player mm -hmm. and what they can handle. I'm still waiting for Braden Smith to go play guard for the Colts because <laughs> that was that was going to happen all over the league, and he hasn't played a down of guard Not a snap. Um, <laughs> since yeah. then. Uh, let's, let's move beyond the Jags, Nick. Let's get to the Denver Broncos. I think we were kind of following them from afar, but I think when they started off one in five or whatever it was, I think people were like, okay, well, we'll play them down the road. Well, now they're, you know, objects in the mirror are closer than they appear because the Broncos are now six and five, won five in a row, playing really good football. Let's get the scouting report on Denver Broncos. Yeah, really good football team. I mean, you're talking about Super Bowl winning head coach, Super Bowl winning quarterback. So great quarterback, good head coach. Um, I'd say the big thing defensively, they've just taken the ball away from teams yeah. over the last four to five weeks. I think they, over that period of time, they lead the league in takeaways, so that's translated to winning. So take the ball away is translated to winning. But offensively, very productive uh, from the running back position, all three players, uh, P. Ryan, Williams, McLaughlin, the undrafted rookie. Um, Sutton's given them a lot of good plays. I think he leads them in touchdown catches, and he's a factor in the red area. And Russell has played very smart, doesn't turn the ball over. I think the one thing that people probably don't give him enough credit for is his ability to make plays with his feet. He's able to maneuver around and get himself out of trouble. But they've played good, sound football. They've taken care of the football offensively. They've run the football effectively. And then defensively, taking the ball away. They've gotten good play from the front. Um, Zach Allen's having a really good season, um, probably his best season of, uh, of his career. Been very disruptive. They're kind of three for two there on the edge with a lot of young players. I mean, here's a good example of a team, you know, moving on from veteran players. They released Clark, released Gregory. Cooper, Benito, and Baron Browning are kind of three for two at outside linebacker. All young players, all players that they drafted. Um, and then Singleton is a high-volume tackler. I think he's among the league leaders in tackles. He's very instinctive. He runs well. Him and Jewel and in the secondary. You can make an argument they have the best player in the league in the secondary in Patrick Sertain. I mean, there's not he does everything well. So he's a matchup player. He can play inside the formation. He can go outside the formation. Very instinctive. He's basically an eraser. I mean, he's eliminated whatever team they've played. He essentially has eliminated their best player and their, or their best receiver. Um, and Simmons is a very instinctive, good communicator, takes the ball away. So, I mean, they have a good team in, in, in the kicking game, really good kicker. Lutz has kicked really well for him this year. Um, Mims has made an impact as a returner who, you know, John, I'm sure you studied yeah. him coming out. Um, and Traymond Smith has made an impact. He's probably their best, I mean, one of their best players in the kicking game. So all three phases, they've got good football players. They've won five straight. They're playing well. They've taken the ball away. They've run the football. So 
I mean, this will probably be the, one of the best teams that we've played yeah. to date without question. So you remember matchups with Sertan's dad, don't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> How does yeah. that make you feel, That's Nick? That's Mark's <laughs> way of saying you're old. I'm no. getting old. No, it's interesting you bring that up. When they had um, him and Madison, I mean, they mm-hmm. were a pain in the ass to yeah. try to throw the ball against because essentially they were always pressed. So even though they were playing, I would say, matchup zone, <laughs> it looked like man, and they just put a lot of pressure on the perimeter of the formation. So they took Madison and Sertain, basically let them take the outside players out of yeah. it, and then you had to deal with the mm-hmm. inside. So that was when Coach Saban was there. Um, but they were they were very difficult to deal with. There's no question about it. Okay, this is going to be a strange one, but we kind of were talking about it. And Asante Samuel, you, you guys had in New England, Asante Samuel Jr. When you're going and you're looking at a player, I know obviously you have to look at the player's you know, body of work. But when a player is Marvin Harrison Jr., when you're looking at the the offspring of somebody that was very good, how does that play in a role at all as you look at that, at Nick? Yeah, not necessarily, other than they have good athletic genes and right, traits. Right, right. But really, you have to focus on the individual player right. and what they do well. I think sometimes haphazardly, you just sort of make, well, he's just like his dad. Well, he may be, but right. he might not be. So right. it's probably not fair to either player in that respect, other than – they have a football background. They have athletic traits and genes. So that's certainly a part of who they are. But right. what they are as players, you have to treat it sort of independently because um, each of them are different, yep. you know, even body type, size, height, length. They might not be the same. They might be the same, but they might not be the same. Well, they'll also understand what it's all about in professional football, right? Yeah. That psychological part. They've of it. probably been in the locker room essentially their whole career, whether yeah. it's they saw their dad play, whether they go to practice. So they are, they've, they're around the game. Um, I'd say Patrick specifically, he's a very aware, very instinctive player. So his dad was a damn good player. He was well coached at University of Alabama, and he's been a good player since he's been in the league for the Broncos. So, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of factors and a lot of people that were involved in his development. Nick, there are big receivers, and then there's Cortland Sutton, um, explosive in a lot of different ways. And now that he seemingly is healthy, I think the ACL was a year or two ago, whatever it was. How much of a problem does he present? Because Sertan has the size, the length that you're looking for in a corner. Sutton's got that at receiver, but now it seems like he's healthy and really making plays. How much of a problem is he? Yeah, significant. I mean, this is a player when he's covered, but he's really not covered. Right. And the Russell does a really good job of putting the ball up and giving him an opportunity to make a play. It's uh, his hand-eye coordination, his body control are probably as good as anybody in the league. And then you combine that with his physical strength, his body strength. He might not be the quote-unquote fastest player, but he's moving. You're talking about a big, fast, strong guy with good ball skills that's able to make contested catches, and they sort of play to his strength. So he and Judy kind of complement one another in terms of what they bring to the table. So um, he was a challenge for us last year when we played in Denver, and he's going to be a challenge here this week on Sunday. Nick, it's my cause, my cleats day. And do you like this one? Players get to express themselves a little bit with their cleats, and do you have anything special that you're going to wear? Yeah, no, I think it's – kind of representative of who the players are as humans and kind of what's important in their life. I think when you take a step back from football, there's probably something that's really impacted their life in some way, shape, or form. It's an opportunity to express those sentiments and kind of make people aware. I think more than anything, it just heightens awareness about a specific cause or a specific area. So uh, I know it's something the players they actually like because they get to you know do a lot of fancy things with their shoes. Um, I, I do have a cause. It's kind of personal to me, so I'd rather just not mm-hmm. you know comment on it now, but it's certainly something i'd say that is 
close friend of mine and just to kind of support him and some of the things that he's involved with. So that's kind of the, the impetus and the thought process behind it. But I think the league has done a great job with a variety of these different initiatives and giving the players an opportunity to sort of express themselves in different ways. I think this one is really, really cool. But I saw a couple of pair of shoes yesterday that are yellow. Yeah. They look like penalty flags. They look like penalty flags. <laughs> well, it's like playing the they Chiefs. They look like penalty flags. <laughs> and it's, I mean, I, I'm telling you, there's going to be a point like flag. No, no, just a shoe. Just a there shoe. Don't say it. Don't shoes. say it on the air. We could mess up a call. Yeah, I know. So I have, I'm, I'm very I'm very aware of that. Nick, we talked about Cortland Sutton. We talked about a lot of – we really haven't focused on Russell Wilson. And I think there was so much noise about Russell last year in 2022 – you know, wasn't playing at the level. Like, there's so much noise this offseason. And quietly, in some sense, 20 touchdowns, four interceptions. It feels like the real Russell is back. But it almost feels like he's kind of changed, too, under Sean Payton. What have you seen with Russell kind of through this year? Yeah, I'd say Russell is probably one of those players that received some undue criticism. You know, some of it could have been a fault of his own or some other circumstances. Yep. But the bottom line is Russ has been a good player in this league for a really long time, and there's a lot of things that he does well. I think the thing about him, he's a very instinctive, very aware player, and he knows how to manipulate and maneuver within the pocket, and he's hard to sack and he's hard to tackle. And historically, he's taken care of the football, which this season, 20-4, and four, is a good example of that. So he's one of the more efficient quarterbacks in the league. He's played at a high level. I mean, he has a lot of experience. He's won a lot of games. And I think the relationship between him and Coach Payton and Coach Lombardi, they've done a good job of working together, and you're starting to see that in the product that they put on the field. So uh, Russ is a very good player, really good player, probably received more criticism yeah. than he should have for a lot of things that were going on, probably with the organization and some of the other things. Nick, it's the holiday season, so Christmas music. Oh is boy. it? Uh, when is it too early for Christmas music? <laughs> it's and interesting. My daughters and I had this discussion. We were driving home from the game uh, a couple weeks ago, or a week or two ago, and they said, "Dad, can't we put Christmas music on on the radio?" I said, "It's not even Thanksgiving yet." They're yeah. like, "Well, so uh, it's probably right around this time." So yeah. when we get in the car, if one of my daughters is with me, they want to go right to Christmas music. They don't want to listen to CNBC. They've had enough of it. <laughs> That's how I could always tell if my wife had driven my car. I'd get in there, and I would hear jingle bells. I'm yeah. like, you don't have Squawk Box on in the car? No? <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. Do you have a favorite Christmas song or two? Uh, my daughter asked me that the other day. I'd say White Christmas is uh, um, okay. it's high on the list, so Solid I would definitely choice. put that up there. And you know, for a myriad of other reasons, probably the Grinch song is probably oh yeah. You know, for <laughs> that's a great uh, one. Sometimes I'm confused as the Grinch, so I think <laughs> it's typecasting. It's become one of our favorites in the household. So <laughs> sounds good, Nick. Thanks a lot for joining us. Good luck this week. Thanks, fellas. Now again, a quick caveat, and I always forget this because we do that interview on Tuesdays. Then we play it on Wednesdays. Now, it goes up on YouTube, so you can kind of see the date stamp and see that I'm not telling you lies. So the Titus Howard news that came out today, the Shaq Griffin news that also came out today, didn't have a chance to talk with Nick about. But uh, we'll be talking about that for sure uh, throughout tonight, tomorrow, Friday. It's going to be a factor. There's no question Titus Howard being out, Shaq Griffin being waived today. Next up, let's go the slant with B. Scott. Brandon Scott from Hiram Clark sat down with Texans linebacker Neville Hewitt. That's next on Texans All Access. Stop back into this Wednesday edition of Texans All Access from the Hyundai Texans Radio Studio. I am John Harris, football analyst, sideline reporter for your Houston Texans. And it's time for the slant with Brandon Scott. 
He sat down with Neville Hewitt. A lot of talk about football, but also this is my cause, my cleats week. Uh, and you guys, you guys know my cause. You saw my shoes last year. Uh, autism awareness is definitely at the top of my list. So you'll see my, my kicks again on Sunday that I wore last year. Neville Hewitt, well, what's close to his heart? Listen up. Here's B. Scott with Neville Hewitt on the slant. Brandon Scott joined here on the slant with Texans linebacker Neville Hewitt. Neville, appreciate you for taking the time to join us, man. And thanks for having me. All right, so I wanted to ask you now, this is your third season here and ninth season in the league. What's it like kind of being an OG around in the locker room? And and tell me, you know, also what's the key to kind of being in the NFL this long, as long as you've been able to do it? Well, I mean, pretty much my role is special teams. And, um, you know, being in the league as long as I've been is part of, partially because of special teams and being able to fit in different defensive systems and, you know, just learning and being able to adapt. Um, I've seen, like, some of the stuff in the locker room. I've seen a lot of the stuff that, that, that some of these guys go through, and I'm able to, you know, talk, talk them through it and just kind of keep them mentally into it, you know. I'll never forget when you first signed here a couple of years ago. Chairman, CEO, Kyle McNair here called you a tackling machine. <laughs> I remember giving him a hard time on the radio about it. Like, he better be. He's a linebacker. He better be a tackling machine, linebacker and special teams guy. But you have stayed true to form to that, uh, even in this past game, knocked the helmet off in a, on a tackle. How would you describe yourself as a player? Um, I always took pride in the run. I, I always looked at it. Somebody run run the ball to my side is probably kind of disrespectful. So um, since I've been in the league, since I've been in college, I always took, you know, took, you know, took it personal in the run game. So when I was, you know, before I came here, I was with the Jets, um, starting at linebacker, and I'd see ball, get ball. And, you know, that's kind of how I've been in the league, just go as hard as you can and outwork anybody. And that's pretty much how you stay around. Tell me about your background, how that shaped you. You moved around a little bit and mm-hmm. had a pretty interesting journey to being undrafted and getting into the NFL. Yeah, so I started off um, high school. I had about seven scholarships. First scholarship was to University of South Carolina. And uh, couldn't accept it. Had offers to Purdue, um, Georgia State, uh, Western Kentucky. Couldn't accept none of the scholarships. Um, at the time, my mom was incarcerated uh, since I was like ninth grade. So I pretty much did enough to qualify to play sports and kept kept me out of trouble. Ended up uh, my high school coach drove me down to Georgia Military College, and um, I was at the time I had dread. So. I, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to cut my hair. <laughs> and, but um, my mom was incarcerated probably like an hour and 30 minutes away. So it was the only junior college in Georgia. And so that same junior college was like a pipeline to go to SEC schools like uh, UGA. We had some placements at, um, from South Carolina and stuff. So I decided to go there, joined the little cadet corps, because you had to be in the cadet corps to play football. And so um, did that, uh, fixed my grades, was on the dean list. And then school start coming in, and I went from playing free safety. Uh, they moved me to strong safety. I started gaining some weight. I got them three meals a day now. <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> and, uh, had a couple offers, Colorado State. Uh, had one more visit to go to Auburn. But Marshall was my first uh, offer. And I went out there, and it was like West, Huntington, West Virginia. And it was like, <laughs> I was, to me, it was like probably one of the worst visits. But it was like it was the perfect setup for me to get to where I wanted to go. And uh, he gave me an opportunity to play there. And, and Coach Fuller, he's at um, uh, Florida State now, defensive coordinator. He I remember him telling me while I was at Marshall, he was like, you're going to either be a really good college football player or you're going to the NFL. And I just start locking in and just start watching film. Um, I had ended up having surgery going into my senior year. 
on my neck, and then um, I just started watching film because I wasn't strong enough to physically get off a block, so I was like, I might have to red shirt. And I was like, nah, I ain't got time to red shirt. So I ended up playing, ended up having like 123 tackles, five sacks, um, uh, interception in the conference championship game, winning my first championship. And um, Coach Duffner, he's with Cincinnati now, he was in Miami. He was calling me like twice a week. And it was like, uh, we're going to try to get you here. And I ended up signing with the Dolphins undrafted. And uh, special teams, special teams coach told me, you learn how to do them kick steps. Uh, we're going to give you a shot. And uh, I went home back to my grandmother's house, and every day I was working on cause working on kick sliding, and then I ended up um, signing on with the Dolphins, played there for three years, started a few games, and went to the Jets and got the opportunity to start eventually. And then later on, uh, got, a, got a chance, had one of my best seasons, and then ended up going through free agency, didn't work out like I thought it would, and ended up getting a shot to come here. And uh, been playing special teams here the last three years, and been a blessing yeah it seems like it's worked out for you because you mm-hmm. you've actually been able to play three seasons at least yeah at each stop that you've been at especially now when you're nine you talked about watching film that's one thing that I remember being talked about you in previous coaching staff since you've been you've been here for some turnover mm-hmm. is how dedicated you are to the film you mentioned your mom being incarcerated when mm-hmm. you were younger and that is the inspiration for your my cause my cleats I want to give you an opportunity to tell us about that and especially like how specific that is to you and your experience and why obviously you're passionate about that. Yeah. So throughout my career, something I always wanted to do is give back to a foundation that uh, specializes in kids who parents are incarcerated. So uh, I think it was like last year, I just started looking around and ended up finding a freedom child foundation that's based here in uh, Houston. And then I was like, well, this is perfect call. This is something I actually wanted to support. So I was like, the last two years, I said, this is, who, this is the foundation that I'm going to represent whenever we get the opportunity because I know how, especially around this time, the holidays, um, I remember like how you just don't have the resources, you know, you, you know, just clothes and food and stuff like that. So I was like, if I can bring awareness to it and get people to, you know, donate or do whatever they can to help out these children, um, that's, that's, my, that's the reason. And then my mom... Uh, the, re- the reason the colors are uh, green and black, my family's Jamaican. So while my mom was incarcerated, she uh, she ended up getting deported my third year in the league. So she ended up getting deported. So it was like she went back to Jamaica. So I always put the Jamaican flag there. And uh, that's pretty much why I ended up, that's why I chose this cause. How did you overcome that? Like, obviously, that's a challenge for you. You said you were in the ninth grade mm-hmm. when she was incarcerated. And, you know, now obviously you are a success story. What would you say is the key to you being able to overcome such a challenge as a youngster? Um, you, I really say a lot of stuff is, is God. I can't really, I can't make up some of the stuff that I went through for like how I'm, how I'm here. Um, just, just, you know, I would say God and then just having like just that perseverance of knowing what I want in life. And I knew I wanted to play in the NFL. And so I was like, if I go to college, I can get there. I, I just, the if part was so big because I'd never seen anybody do it. And so once I've done it and I graduated and I got the opportunity, I was like, there's nothing that's going to stop me from going. I always wanted to play 10-plus years because that's what I grew up seeing. You know, I grew up idolizing Sean Taylor and Ray Lewis, and those guys did it at a, such a high level that that was the standard that I've known. And uh, just following the people that I've seen and having great leadership and just, just staying out of trouble, <laughs> staying out of trouble and just knowing right from wrong, it's common sense stuff. And I just 
kept kept it going moving forward. Now, when you started here, you weren't necessarily familiar with the Jamaican food scene, even though you were already a fan of the overall local food scene. Have you mm-hmm. found a spot? You mentioned your Jamaican roots. Have you found anything that you can maybe cling to that's anything close to, to mm-hmm. what you're looking for, having that Jamaican background? Not really. I still haven't really found that place. I mean, I still try some stuff here and there, but I haven't found that one. Well, you got any recommendations? <laughs> well, see, I, and this is the thing. I recommended a place to somebody. I did an interview with uh, with the coach of the Dynamo before, and, mm-hmm. it, and I gave him a recommendation, and he said, I've been there before. Okay. And so I don't want to give you the recommendation. You tell me you've been there before, and then it's not any good. You <laughs> I know? mean, I take it. But, you know? but, but I know that Cool Runnings is the place that I go right. to, and uh, there's the Reggae Hut, too. Um, I've been to Reggae Hut. Oh, man, that, and that's more, a more popular spot, you know, mm-hmm. on Alameda, Museum District, so it's a scene, you know, maybe a place to take your lady on top of getting you a nice little uh, Caribbean dish. Okay, so I try that keep, out. Keep, keep that in mind. Um, hey, Neville, I appreciate you for taking the time. This is really good, man, and uh, best of luck to you going forward in the season. Thank you. I appreciate it. B. Scott, Neville Hewitt, great job, B. Scott, and appreciate Neville for coming by and dropping some knowledge about his cause and showing some awareness. So great stuff from Neville Hewitt with Brandon Scott. Coming up next – the men behind the mics, the two men that will call the game on Sunday from NRG Stadium. You know Mark Vandermeer, the voice of the Texans from day one. Dave Logan, longtime Broncos play-by-play man, together next on Texans All Access. Yes, sir. Welcome back to this Wednesday edition of Texans All Access from Monday Texans Radio Studio. I am your host, John Harris, football analyst, sideline reporter for your Houston Texans. And it's time to go men behind the mics. Now, Mark Vandermeer does this interview each and every week. He sends it to me. You know, Dave Logan, Frank Frangi, you know, tells me whoever it's going to be. He sent this email to me, and it said the most interesting man, the most interesting play-by-play in history. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. Well, why was that? Well, first of all, Dave Logan was really a good wide receiver in the NFL. He had 263 receptions, a little over 4,000 yards, 24 touchdowns. He had a lot of key um, key plays for the Cleveland Browns. But his last year, he spent with the Denver Broncos in 1984. So he ended up moving to Colorado and living in Colorado. He's actually from Colorado and went to UCU. And he began his career in radio. He's a color analyst and then shifted to play-by-play in 1996. So he's been calling – Every game for the Broncos since 96. So that would include 97 and 98, in which the Broncos won back-to-back world championships. He also is a full-time head coach in his quote-unquote off time. He has won state championships in, wow. He started his coaching career in 93. So let's go through this. Arvada West. Moved to Chatfield, then to J.K. Mullen. J.K. Mullen, he took his teams, as of 2017, Logan had taken his teams to the playoffs 22 times and won eight state championships in 24 years of coaching. So then he moved on to Cherry Creek High School. Logan's team there won the 5A state championship in 2014, 2019, 2020, 2021, and 2022. Logan is the only person in Colorado prep history to coach Division 5A championship football teams at four different schools. How about that? 
That is amazing. He donates his coaching salary to all of his assistant coaches. He's the broadcast citizen of the year in Colorado. He was the Colorado sportscaster of the year three times. He's an amazing, amazing story. And he is, when I hear his voice, I automatically think of Denver Broncos football. So let's think of Texans, the Broncos, with Mark Vandermeer asking the questions and sitting down with Dave Logan of the Denver Broncos. Visiting with us now on Texans Radio, it's Dave Logan, the play-by-play voice of the Denver Broncos. Dave, how's it going, my friend? I imagine a lot better in the last five games. Hey, Mark, uh, great to catch up with you. Yeah, it, uh, I mean, obviously you would know. It's it's a lot more fun broadcasting games when the team is winning and the atmosphere uh, is a lot better. And so they're on a five-game winning streak. And, uh, you know, I don't think anybody saw that coming after a one-and-five start, but they've been able to – turn things around and, and play much better football and find ways to win close games. All right. When the team got blown out by Miami, did you think this was even remotely possible? What were your thoughts at the time and what's been the difference as they've turned it around? Well, I mean, in all honesty, no, this is my uh, 34th year calling Broncos games. And I, I have never seen, not only have I not broadcast one, I've not played in one. I've not even witnessed a game like that where an NFL team gives up 70 points. So at, at that point, I think it was at an all-time low. I mean, we, we thought there could be all sorts of changes, whether coaching changes or player changes. Uh, I think everything was sort of on the table. But I think to to Sean Payton's credit and, and also to the players' credit, um, they, they, they righted the ship. And that's that's easier said than done, right? I mean, I think it's I think it's uh, it, it's a pretty good job by them, and I think I think Mark, what they've done is uh, they've found a formula that works for them. They want to run the ball, they want to limit uh, turnovers, and the defense has been on almost an historic run in terms of creating turnovers. Uh, they've had 15 turnovers in the last four games. They've created 16 in the last five. The five-game winning streak. They've created 16 turnovers. So. Um, that it, it's worked for them now, and uh, they, they are playing with confidence, which I think is, is really important, even at the NFL level, and uh, playing pretty good football. Dave Logan, Broncos voice, joining us on Texans Radio. Dave, what is the secret or the formula to the takeaways? What is the theme on how they are taking the ball away from the opponent during this streak? Yeah, I don't know that, uh, I don't know that there would be one thing. I think you know a couple of, uh, couple of guys have really stepped up when given the opportunity, I think Jaquan McMillan has been huge for them. Uh, he's come in and played at the at the nickelback. He's made uh, he's made a bunch of big big plays. He had a two game stretch where he had uh, you know two interceptions and two caused fumbles. And so they uh, and I think they've been a little bit more aggressive defensively. And I think part of that is they've been able to do a better job against the run. Uh, they they were not good against the run at their, in the early part of the season. Um, and they've had moments. I mean, they gave up over 160 yards rushing against the Vikings, but then they come back and play the Browns last week in Denver, and and they were better. They were better against the rush. So I think it starts with that their ability to try to try to control that running game and get you into situations where they they know you're you're going to have to throw it, which is certainly the recipe for for most NFL teams. What about Russell Wilson, Dave? Because I look at the passing yard total. It's not like he's throwing for buckets of yards here, but he does have a lot of touchdown passes. What's been the difference for him and the success formula? 
I think, Mark, last year, honestly, I think Russell was really humbled. Um, I mean, it was just a disastrous season. And this is a guy that had had really nothing but success coming from Seattle. Um, and then he, then he comes here, and, I mean, nothing worked. He looked nothing like the same guy. The offense was bad. The entire team was bad. Obviously, uh, they changed coaches. And then you bring in Sean Payton. Uh, and I think Sean has done a good job with Russell sort of just getting him back on track. And so he's, he's more willing to run this year. He had three kneel downs last game, but he had eight, eight legitimate rushes. And there were times last year where, where he would step up into the pocket, pocket would open, he just wouldn't run. But he's running now. A couple of those last week were designed quarterback runs off the zone read. So that, I think, has helped him. And he's been really good in the red zone. He's got 20 touchdown passes, 14, uh, four interceptions. Uh, he's got no interceptions in, in the red zone. And um, so I, I think he's, he's been accurate. Um, and I think the offense has helped him. I mean, they're, they're right now, you know, they're, they're going to run the ball. I mean, they're going to stay patient with the run and, and not have him take a lot of chances uh, in the passing game. And, and so far, it's been successful. Yeah, I noticed that, that he's running the ball a little bit more. Is that a huge key in their running game overall? Because I noticed the production is up. You mentioned it yourself. Yeah, I don't know if it's a huge key. I think, I think his willingness to run. Um, and again, I think, you know, just you, you contrast last year to this year. He just, uh, for whatever reason, my assessment would be he just wasn't willing to run. He wasn't looking to run. There were opportunities where in the past in Seattle, you would see the pocket open and he'd take off. I mean, he's, he's really one of, the, one of the best dual threat quarterbacks that the league has seen in the last 20 years. Um, but that was not the case last year. Now this year, he's more willing to do that. He's been, he's been aggressive in uh, when things break down in the pocket, stepping out and picking up positive yards. Instead of last year, I think he, he got a little big play happy, trying to look for the big plays and, and create those. I mean, big plays normally happen. They just sort of happen, right, mm-hmm. off the running game, off heavy play action. But last year, it just it just wasn't a good good mesh with with the offense and Russell. Dave Logan, Broncos voice, joining us on Texans Radio. Dave, what about Sean Payton? Do you think that the sluggish start, the bad start, was maybe a major cultural adjustment to Sean Payton and the way he does things? Because clearly, he's had a lot of success, and now you're seeing the success recently with the Broncos. Now that he's been in there for a bit, yeah, maybe I think. Mark, he's, uh, I mean, he's buttoned up for sure. It's, it's, uh, there's a different feel at the, at the Broncos headquarters, I think, for everybody. And I'm assuming that uh, the feel is different for players as well. At least players have, have told me that. But when you look back, I mean, this is going to be a season, depending on how the last six games go. I mean, the Broncos are 6-5 and five now, but they had three home games, losing to the Raiders, losing to the Commanders, and losing to the Jets. I mean, those are three teams, given the circumstances of those three teams. And, and they had leads over those three teams at halftime in all three games and wound up losing. And so, I mean, what they've done since then makes, makes it even more remarkable when you've been in the league a long time, too. When you, when you give away a home game to a team that you're better than and that you should beat, you got to go. You got to go steal one somewhere. I think they stole one in Buffalo and may have stolen one at home against Kansas City, breaking that 16-game losing streak. But uh, yeah, I think the culture is absolutely different 
with Sean Payton. And I think right now everybody would have to say it's working. Dave, you're a unique individual being drafted in Major League Baseball by the NBA, Kansas City Kings, and by the Cleveland Browns. So why did you choose football? I know you're great in all three. What led you to choose football? And can you discuss that a bit? Because that is unbelievable that you were drafted by all three sports. Oh, it's, uh, gosh, it's, it's a long time ago, I can tell you that. But, I mean, I got drafted <laughs> in baseball out of high school. And back then, the, the rule has since changed. But back then, if you signed a professional contract, you could not play any sport in college. So we notified all the major league teams that I was, I was going to go to college and, and do that. And I got drafted by the Cincinnati Reds. And then I went to college at the University of Colorado. I played both football and basketball, and intending to play baseball as well. But the coach that recruited me to play football got fired after my sophomore year. And the new coach uh, didn't want me to play baseball in the spring, wanted me to, to uh, get involved in the spring football program. So, But in terms of the, the – uh, the, the choice, I had broken my ankle playing basketball at CU uh, shortly before the NFL draft. And uh, I think it probably hurt me a little bit in terms of the of the draft position. But um, I, I can't give you an answer in terms of why I, I, I picked the NFL. I just thought at that point, let me just go ahead and try this. And, and I really did think, hey, if, if, uh, if the NFL doesn't work out, um, I'm going to go back and and try uh, try to sign on with the Kings and see what happens there. But fortunately for me, uh, the situation in Cleveland was good. We all remember the campaign, the most interesting man in the world. You are the most interesting play-by-play man in the world. There's no question. With all this extracurricular <laughs> stuff, your background, and the fact that you coach high school football, what have you won, eight state championships, something like that, in Colorado? Well, we, we've um, we've won 11, and we're, we're actually playing <laughs> Saturday – uh, we're playing Saturday in the state championship this year. Normally it's held uh, at Empower Field at Mile High, which is the Broncos Stadium. This year has been moved up to uh, to uh, CSU on on the campus of Colorado mm-hmm. State University. So, listen, I've I've been uh, I've been blessed to uh, <clears throat> excuse me be able to work with kids for a long time. It's 31 years as a as a head coach, and I love kids and I love football. I think the I think football is the greatest team sport in the world that can teach teach life lessons to so many uh, different young people. And uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's been a great run. It really has. All right. So you'll coach at a state championship game on Saturday and broadcast the Broncos at the Texans on Sunday. So you're going to take an early Sunday morning flight. Is that the plan? Well, I've, um, the plan is to try to get down there. The last nonstop from Denver to Houston. Uh, I think I have a, a reasonable chance to make that. So okay. we're, we're, we're keeping our fingers crossed on that. Well, you've never missed a game, right? Despite coaching all this high school football. No, I've never missed a Broncos game and I've never missed a, a high school game either. Wow. You must have had a lot of running through the airport scenes. I'm going back to an old. Hey, I'll I, I tell you what, I've, I've got, uh, you know, I've got a handful plus of stories that you, you would just shake your head. And uh, I mean, I got very, very lucky, but it, it has been, uh, there have been some late night, calls, uh, trying to get a private plane, realizing how much money that would cost. And it's, uh, but, but you know what, At, in the end, I've, I've never missed a game. I've had a couple of very close calls, but, um, you know, it's been worth it.
Dave, it's such a pleasure to catch up. Best of luck in the championship game on Saturday, and we hope you make it here safe, and I look forward to seeing you on Sunday, my friend. Sounds good, Mark. Look forward to seeing you too. Great stuff from Mark and Dave Logan. Can't wait to see Dave on Sunday as the Broncos arrive and probably arrive in a bad mood. Now, over the years, Dave Logan has probably said the name Nick Ferguson hundreds of times, former Bronco, former Texan. Well, we're going to go behind enemy sidelines with Nick Ferguson, with Drew Doherty. That's next on Texans All Access. It's time to go behind enemy sidelines right here on a Wednesday edition of Texans All Access. As we kick off our second hour, taking you up till 8 o'clock. Appreciate you being with me, John Harris, football analyst, sideline reporter. And it is time to catch up with Nick Ferguson. Now, if you need, if that name sounds familiar, well, Nick Ferguson played defensive back in the NFL. Broncos, Texans, he is in Denver, radio host, Knows this team inside and out. He sat down with Drew Doherty so we could go behind enemy sidelines right now. There is maybe no better person to talk to about this Denver Broncos versus Houston Texans matchup than a guy who played for both of them. He's living in the Denver area now, but he's still piped into everything going on here. Talking about longtime NFL defensive back Nick Ferguson one of my favorite Houston Texans of all time. When I joined the team and started working here in 2009, you're a safety here, DB here, and you would come out sometimes in pregame wearing a Darth Vader mask, and I like that. That was different. So, Nick, yeah. how the heck are you, my friend? I'm doing uh, well, man. I hope you guys are doing well down in Houston. I know you guys are doing well down in Houston, just kind of uh, sitting back here in Denver watching everything uh, unfold. And it's funny that you bring up uh, – the Darth Vader mask. Uh, I, I would say this, that that's when a lot of my Nick Ferguson personality that it now shines now actually started, believe it or not. So, so yeah, yeah. thank the, the Houston Texans organization for that. Yeah. We had some fun times with you. We did what's in the locker and you, you pulled out all sorts of shenanigans <laughs> and we did that. That yeah. video is floating around somewhere. I'm going to try and dig it up um, in conjunction with this, but before we get into the matchup, before we get into the coaching stuff, you're also the perfect guy to talk to about this because this morning the news comes out. One of your former teammates, Andre Johnson, a pro football hall of fame semifinalist. I'm biased. I think he should have gotten in earlier. Uh, I've written about how the 10 guys in front of him yardage wise career receiving yardage wise. They're all val They're all hall of famers. The three who aren't should be in. They will be in someday. Larry Fitzgerald, Steve Smith Jr., and Reggie Wayne. They're all Hall of Famers. But Andre belongs with them because you look at the numbers and you dive a little deeper, and he stacks up with them. But in your opinion, in with your facts and what you saw, why is Andre Johnson a Pro Football Hall of Famer in your mind? Well, the way that he uh, approached the game. if It was one of those things, and I say it now, even when a guy is covered, he's open. And that kind of personified, you know, Andre Johnson to, to a flaw. And looking at, you know, our team and saying, okay, well, what, what was the guy that every defense is saying, well, we need to stop that guy. Andre Johnson was that wide receiver. He was wide receiver one. And mm -hmm. he made some exceptional uh, catches. Uh, obviously, those battles between uh, him and Cortland Finnegan, uh, obviously everyone remembers those. Me being a teammate on the sideline for all of that, I yep. remember that. But just knowing that Dre was one of those silent guys. He didn't really say a lot. He just did a lot on the football field, and it was hard to stop him no matter where he was and no matter where Coach Kubiak lined him up. 
Yeah, that's good stuff. I, I kind of point that out in this little piece I wrote. You know, all the guys in front of him, I think eight of them played with a guy who at one point they played with a Hall of Fame quarterback. And I think the other two played with guys who were Pro Bowl quarterbacks for at least four or five seasons. Matt Schaub, fine quarterback for a good chunk of, of Andre's existence here in Houston, but he only went to two Pro Bowls. So lots of lots of stats behind that. But I like hearing your your aspect on it because you had to cover him in practice or try to cover yeah. him in practice. And yeah, try, yeah, you, try is a much, be, much, much better word. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not denigrating. You're a great, you're a fine, fine NFL defensive back. But you, like many, you had your struggles with Andre Johnson over the years. All right, let's get into this matchup because you and I had a lot of fun about nine, ten months ago when the Broncos and the Houston Texans were in the head coaching search. You had to talk me off a ledge a few times. You you would you would joke with me. But I think it's safe to say each side got the guy they wanted, wouldn't you say? D'Amico Ryan's the, the Texans and Sean Payton there with Denver. Yeah, they did. And for me, you know, being a little biased, I, I played with D'Amico and I coached mm-hmm. with him in San Francisco. I just know everything that he embodies. I know that uh, if he had came into this team, they would be great on both sides of the ball. You guys are experiencing that right now uh, in Houston. So I was a little biased. I was a little disappointed that the Broncos organization did not go that way. But both teams got the guys that they wanted to. And when you look at the fact that D'Amico was drafted in Houston, seldom do we see former players become head coaches. But yeah. even in those numbers of Laura, a guy was drafted going back to the team that drafted him, and now he's leading them. So great job by the Texas organization being able to scoop D'Amico up. And then also you look at here in Denver with Sean Payton. The Broncos were looking to turn the page away from Nathaniel Hackett, and they needed someone who can kind of get Russell Wilson back on track and, more importantly, get the offense back in somewhat of a rhythm. And Sean Payton proved to be that guy. And known as though the team didn't start out well, they started off one and five, and they ripped off five wins in a row, being one of the hottest teams in the NFL right now. So once again, both organizations got the coaches they needed to lead their teams. No doubt. Now, I want to get into that in a moment. One last thing about D'Amico. You, you bring up how you coached with him. So obviously you saw what a leader he was as a player, but you had a different insight into him when you talk about that coaching, because he was a young coach at that point, mm-hmm. what did you see there that made you think, okay, he's clearly got a few. I mean, you probably thought that anyways, but just from the coaching side of things, what kind of emboldened that idea that, man, this guy's going to be a success. Well, it goes back to our playing days, obviously mm-hmm. Miko being a Mike linebacker, that's kind of the leader of the defense. And you just saw it then how guys kind of gravitated towards him, his uh, player to player approach. And he was one of those guys that knew the playbook up and down. And watching him with San Francisco, it was great. It was almost like seeing that same guy, but just in a different role. When you look at the development of Fred Warner, who's out there in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. a lot of that credit has to go to D'Amico because D'Amico could relate to what Fred Warner was going through as a young Mike linebacker, both on and off the field, and his ability to teach. That's a valuable asset to have because if you look up the coach in the Webster Dictionary. The first word in defining coach should be teacher. And there's a lot of coaches out there, but they all can't teach. And you're right. just having that, that peer-to-peer relationship with your players. It is something I have to tell you in my experience in NFL as a, as a coach and as a player, most coaches don't subscribe to because the idea is that, you know, at some point you have to cut a player. 
So you have to start with making sure that there is not a big relationship or tie to that particular player. D'Amico is the total opposite. Those guys love him. And that's why you see, you know, game in and game out. Those Texan players are not just playing for one another. They're not just playing for the city. They're playing for their head coach. You brought him up, man. Russell Wilson, he's playing really well. 20 touchdowns, just four picks, completing 68% of his passes. What the heck is different about Russell this year versus the Russell Wilson the Texans saw last year in week two, which he got the win. They beat the Texans, but he's not not the guy now that he was then. What's different? Is it purely just the coaching? I mean, what's changed? It's Russell getting back to to Russell. Uh, when he came here and Nathaniel Hackett took over, Russ picked up some weight because he was thinking, okay, well, I'm getting older. I'm going to take some hits, so I have to bulk up a little. But to me, that took Russ out of the game that we kind of known him to be as far as that quarterback playing in Seattle, a guy that can get outside the pocket. Now, he's not that same guy. And, all, 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 you know, both you and I know as you get older, you change and you have to evolve. But he dropped some weight and he said, well, I'm going to try to get back to the old Russell Wilson. When the, Last year, when there were opportunities for Russell to scramble, he didn't take advantage of those opportunities. Now he's saying, well, the holes are going to open up based on the rush lanes. I'm just going to take what the defense gives me and try to extend plays. So he's making better plays as far as using his feet to extend drives. And Russell has always been a cerebral quarterback. When you look at mm -hmm. his ball placement, his accuracy, those things have always been there. And I see it with a lot of young quarterbacks who come into the league who are considered to be that dual threat quarterback, where they're trying to prove to everyone that they can be that statue as quarterback. And what I say to that is just like, don't worry about that. Do you. Your yeah. athleticism got you to the league, puts you in a position that you're in. Don't abandon that. That's why when I look at C.J. Stroud, he reminds me of those early Seattle days with Russell Wilson, the way that he loses ground to gain ground, to break, get outside the pocket against those edge rushers, and just how he manipulates the pocket. The one thing I do, I don't fixate so much on the guy's arm because every year we hear about arm talent. Right. The first thing when I watch CJ, my eyes go to his feet, right? Because I feel as though your your feet make your better quarterback running and throwing the ball. So he has exceptional feet. And that's why when I look at both CJ now and what Russell was before and what Russell was trying to bring back to this Broncos uh, offense, it's that footwork. And those are things that are important. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. Don't know how much you got to see of the Texans game this last Sunday, but CJ Stroud had to move around quite a bit inside the pocket, outside the pocket, and his footwork was really impressive. I mean, he was under duress for much of the day, but didn't throw a pick, played pretty darn well. And his footwork, like you mentioned, we've heard others, Steve Smith Sr. brought it up in the pre-draft process. We've heard from James Palmer out there in Denver as well with the NFL Network. He's brought up how many people were, were so impressed with that footwork, but it really kind of came to the fore last weekend. And at times... He'll be judicious and he will run with the ball, but he's not just doing it every single time or, or, or really, really frequently, but he's, he's smart about it. Kind of like what we're, we're hearing from you about Russell Wilson, isn't he? Yeah, he, he is. And I watched that Jacksonville game and he did a great job, you know, moving and sliding in the pocket, giving his receivers an opportunity to get open. And they did a great job for him. Just not just running around and just stopping. Like we see most wide receivers do they continue to work to get to that second and that third progression route. And for me, when I look at some of the decision-makings that CJ 
he's making right now, it, it has to kind of remind you of what Patrick Mahomes is. Mahomes is always making those off-schedule plays. And usually mm-hmm. when you see a quarterback start to scramble, the idea is that he's scrambling to run. Last week against Jacksonville, he was scrambling to buy time so the wide receiver can get open. Like he was scrambling to his left, and he did this kind of like pirouette move. And then Tank Dell would say, "Well, listen, I'm not going to keep running. I'm just going to stop here and give him a target to throw." And he found him right inside the end zone. That's why the Texans' chemistry right now, offensively, is off the charts. All right, tell me more about this chemistry that Wilson has with his pass catchers, not just his receivers, but tight ends and so on and so forth. What's he doing well and what are they what are they bringing out of him that's kind of made this offense start clicking and start winning ball games five in a row? That's that's not easy to do. No, it's not easy to do and the, the same thing that's happening in Houston with CJ Stroud and his wide receivers, now we're starting to see that evolution and that adaptation come together with the Broncos and their wide receivers. Last year, I didn't see a lot of receivers working to get open. It was usually if the rot was at five or 10 yards, they ran that route, they stopped, they saw the quarterback scramble, and they just flashed their hands. You can't do that anymore. I mean, defensive players are so much better now than they were when I played. So you have to work to get open, constantly moving, because you know you have a quarterback that can get you the ball. There was a pass that Russell threw to Adam Trotman, the tight end, and it was first ruled out of bounds. But Trotman made uh, a, a great catch where Russell put the ball where only his guy can make, you know, the reception. And that's kind of been the difference with this team. Everyone now working together, one common goal. And I know it sounds crazy because you think this is what you should do anyway. No, when, when you are one in five, you start feeling sorry for yourself. You start yeah. Thinking about, man, I messed up here and I messed up there. And this is a mental game. It's more mental than it is physical. But now the mental aspect is now changing for the Denver Broncos team. And where they didn't have confidence before, they have a lot of confidence now. It really is wild. I mean, mid-October, you look at that that team and you say, okay, well, you're going to play them in December. That's that's a W because they're they're going to fold yeah. up. They're going to fold up their tents and they'll be done. Russ is finished and they have done the exact Opposite. We're talking with Nick Ferguson, longtime NFL safety, played 10 years in the league from 2000 through 2009, finished up here with the Houston Texans, played for the Broncos as well as the Jets. Nick, what about the run game? How much is that helping things out? How much is it not helping? What have you seen there in, in on the ground in Denver? Well, they say that a run game is a quarterback's best friend, and it is true. Down in Houston, you got Devin Singletary, who's been, I guess, a workhorse for you guys and that outlet pass. So when you look at what the Broncos are doing and Sean Payton is trying to deploy, he's trying to deploy that same type of philosophy. Use your backs, hand the ball off. And I know there's this idea in the NFL, just run the ball. See, I don't I don't subscribe to that because just running the ball is not uh, a solution. You have to be creative in how you choose to run the ball. Last week against the Cleveland Browns, uh, a tough defense, one of the top defense yeah. in the NFL, They ran the ball. They found success. So they found kind of holes and weaknesses in the defense, and they used to – they tried to exploit them and exploit them. They did. And you have, you know, three running backs. Three running backs who have a different style of running that you can hand the ball up to. So Marjorie P. Ryan has been great as an outlet pass catcher for Russell Wilson. You also look at Javante. You look at uh, Jaquan McMillan. uh, Excuse me, not Jaquan McMillan. uh, But – you, you look at these running backs and 
they're able to put the ball in their hands and allow them to matriculate the ball down down the field. So it's exceptional uh, group of running backs that they have. All right, over on the other side of the ball, the defense, Nick, is 29th in the NFL in points per game allowed. So they're they're struggling in there. They're, they're giving up about 25-plus. What are you seeing from them? You, you don't have a bad defense and still win five games in a row. What's going well for them? What are some kind of spots that the Texans might be able to exploit, you think? Well, the thing that's going well for the Broncos' defense is they're now starting to play like a cohesive unit. Uh, obviously, everyone goes back to that Miami Dolphins game where the Dolphins put up 70 points. It's not that same team. Some yeah. of the issues that were plaguing them before, they've now fixed. And this is a more aggressive defense. When you watch them play, you got guys running sideline to sideline. You know, Alex Singleton, who is the team's leading tackler for the second year in a row, that's the guy that kind of the straw that stirs the drink. That's the guy that kind of gets everything going because he is that tone setter for, for the defense. So now they're playing together as a unit. Communication has gotten so much better than it was in that Miami Dolphins game and early in the season. So those are some of the things that have definitely helped this team. But the biggest thing is turnovers. Early in the season, they were not getting turnovers. They were not getting those 50-50 balls. Now they're getting 50-50 balls. And this is how crazy it's been for them. I mean, the Browns put their tight end at the quarterback position for someone, someone like a quarterback sneak. He fumbles the ball, and they get they recover that fumble. Early on in the season, they were not making those types of plays. The ball was, wasn't bouncing in their way. So that's something that has gone well for them. If, if you're saying, okay, well, where have they needed to show up? It's on their run defense. We've seen teams being able to run on the Broncos defense. But here's the thing. Last week against the Browns, they did a great job against Ford and Kareem Hunt. But if you design, and I know Coach Slow is going to find a way to design and scheme some run plays to get Devin Singletary uh, involved in an offense from a run game standpoint, maybe he may be able to find some room. You know, the Jaguars have a really good run defense, and the Texans ran into that and, and didn't have too much success. But the two previous weeks, they get 100 yards out of Devin Singletary each time, going against weaker run defenses, you know, statistically speaking. So it stands to reason, looks like the Texans have a chance to get things going because Damian Pierce has gotten integrated back into the mix as well. So it's it's a nice nice combo. You saw some of Damian Pierce last year in Denver yeah. and what he could do as a rookie. Well, yeah, I mean, when you have dynamic backs like the Texans have, the idea is to find ways to set them up perfectly. Coach Slowick has done a great job thus far. I'm sure he's going to use those guys in a multitude of different ways. And we saw last week against Jacksonville, the screen game was working. That was one of the go-tos and kind of a stress reliever for you know, C.J. Stroud, uh, not allowing him to kind of – or forcing him into making a mistake. Just dump the ball off to Devin Singletary and let him do the work. So I'm sure he's going to uh, dial up a couple of things. And once again, I, I was coaching with Coach Lowe in San Francisco. He spent a lot of time around Kyle Shanahan and looking at how Kyle has used CMC. I'm sure that Coach Slogan is looking to do the same thing with his running backs. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because, like you mentioned, you coached with Slowick a little bit there in San Francisco. You you practiced against that Shanahan-Kubiak offense all those years as a player in Denver and Houston. We give D'Amico Ryans a lot of credit for the success, and yes, he has been mouth-to-mouth resuscitation for this franchise, but also helping things out. How big a deal do you think Bobby Slowick's offense has been for this team? 
it, it's uh, it's a huge uh, help for the team, but more importantly, defense. When, when your offense can move the ball, ball down the field, you know, they, they can sustain the drive, two-minute drive, four-minute drive. It helps out your defense. It keeps mm-hmm. them on the sideline. It keeps them fresh. So when they go out there against opposing offense, those guys like Will Anderson, they, they can come off the edge. They can really get after uh, the quarterback. And then knowing as though, okay, if you start the trail and you, and you look at the games that the Texans have played this season, you know, there have been moments that where the Texans have been ahead. There are moments that they've been behind, but they've been able to to that game. I mean, when you look at the Jacksonville game, right, it, it was one of those games where whatever team had the ball last was probably going to win the ball game. The Texans had the ball. They were moving down the field, but it was just that sack on C.J. Stroud that kind of took him out of field goal range. Mm-hmm. If he's not he's that sack, now they move the ball down and field goal range, and then now they kick the game winning field goal. This is one of those things and evolutions that you're seeing with this offense that you you really don't see. And, and that's been an extraordinary thing. You have a rookie head coach, you have a rookie offensive coordinator, and you have a rookie quarterback. They're not supposed to be where they are right now. Yeah. They're not. So they're shocking a lot of people, but people around the league are starting to get over the initial shock and say, you know what? It's time to take this this team serious and they can play some real good football. And for a real good stretch of that, at least six, seven games, you had a rookie center in Jarrett Patterson. And then on top of that, you've had a rookie wide receiver, Tank Dell, doing what he's doing. Rookie wide receivers don't usually have the success that a guy like Dell is having. As a former defensive back, how much of a headache is it knowing that that guy's out there, knowing that Nico Collins, who's big, Mm -hmm. fast, plays with a real controlled violence, that you got tight end Dalton Schultz in there, a veteran like Robert Woods and Noah Brown might might or might not be back, but he's had a couple 150 yard games. What's it like as a DB knowing that there's all those threats of different variety that you got to face? It's a big headache, and I don't think they build a, a, a created a bigger aspirin that you could take uh, trying to defend all those guys. <laughs> but that's the thing when, when you have a rookie quarterback, and don't get me wrong, CJ Stroud was very talented. I thought he was coming out of Ohio State. But you have to put pieces around him. And having a veteran guy like Robert Woods to kind of lead that wide receiving core, it is is so important. I mean, you mentioned Nico Collins, who is an extraordinary wide receiver. And you have Dalton Schultz at your tight end, Andrew Beck, who played here, tight end with the Broncos. But you look at Tank Dell. I mean, the chemistry that those two have have created over the past couple of weeks has been extraordinary. And when when I watch film on this team, the first thing I think about I go back, I say, well, you got Coach Lord who spent time in San Francisco. Who does Tank Dale remind me of based on how he moves around and how they get him involved in the offense? I immediately go to Debo Samuels. Now, they're not putting him in the backfield, right? right? They're moving him around to set him up so both he and C.J. Stroud can complete some of those passes. There's a lot of rhythmic passes, and that's what you want to do for your quarterback. You don't want to stress him out. You don't want to make things difficult because the game is already tough within itself. Try to get him into a rhythm, find him a go-to guy, a go-to route, and then start matriculating the ball down the field. And that chemistry, once again, it's so important. If there was a such thing as uh, a safety net for C.J. Stroud when in tight situations, he's going to look for Tank Dell. That's not to say that uh, none of the other wide receivers have developed their chemistry, but everyone has a go-to person, and Tank Dell has become that for C.J. Stroud. It's been so much fun to watch, Nick. It seems like almost every pass C.J. Stroud throws, it's yeah. thrown 
just in front of the guy so that he doesn't have to break stride and he's got some space. And when you've got space and you're going at, at near full speed, dangerous things are going to happen in a good way for your offense, aren't they, Nick Ferguson? Yeah, absolutely. Once again, this is the thing that makes C.J. Stroud such a great quarterback. And I know individuals have tossed his name out as far as uh, being an MVP. And he's playing in that, that particular way, especially for a young guy, because a lot of things that he's doing, Drew, usually you do in your second and maybe in your third year. He's doing them in his first year. Yeah. So I got to give him a lot of credit. Obviously, you get the coaching staff a lot of credit, but I got to give the player a lot of credit because what you're talking about is real important because sometimes rookie quarterbacks, they want to, they, they want to show how strong their arms are. So if a guy's running a shallow route, they're trying to zip that ball in. He's throwing with a lot of touch. And you can tell by his pregame warmups that, you know, those touch passes are so important. I saw him warming up with the basketball, looking like he's shooting free throws. You really don't see that in today's NFL with a lot of quarterbacks, but a lot of those kind of pregame rituals are now showing up in the game. Nick Ferguson, we appreciate the time. It's always great to talk with you. So much fun is being had in Denver and in Houston. Happy times here again for both those football teams. We will tee it up and see these guys square off at noon Sunday inside NRG Stadium. But Nick Ferguson, thanks so much for the time, my friend. Thanks for having me. Yeah, if y'all have seen CJ's warm-up routine, it includes basketball, it includes baseball. You can see him swinging, working hips. And CJ has said, it's funny because I can't remember when this was, probably three, four weeks ago, he was asked about what teams should be looking for in a quarterback. And one of the things he said was multiple sport athlete. And I absolutely a thousand percent agree with that. CJ's one heck of a basketball player. I don't know what kind of golfer he is. I don't know what kind of baseball player he is. I know he can ball in a basketball court. I know that for a fact. And he throws the prettiest pass in the NFL. So there's that as well. All right, we get back. We're going to go college football with my man David Fletcher, Lone Star Sports and Entertainment, Executive Director of the Texas Bowl, Tax Act Texas Bowl. That's coming up on December 27th. But Selection Day is coming up on Sunday. What goes into that? We'll discuss it next with my man David Fletcher right here on Texans All Access. All right, it's time to talk a little college football. And you know that's always going to tug at my heartstrings. John Harris along with David Fletcher, Executive Director of Tax Act Texas Ball. i got to make sure it's Fletch. I say that slowly because it could be a total mess if I don't. Good afternoon. How are you doing, my friend? Johnny, you can say it any way you want. It's just exciting to be talking about college football this time of year and a lot going on here in Houston, the epicenter of the college football universe over the next month. And it starts December 27th with that Tax Act Texas Bowl. All right. SEC Big 12, that's always been a big thing uh, for me, obviously. But I like the Big 12 side of things because I know you have the decision on the Big 12 side. So the the Big 12, to me, feels the most uh, Rubik's Cube-like, where I look at the SEC and I think, okay, I think I know what the team is going to be. We may know it on the Big 12 side, but how do you kind of break down and look at the Big 12 side of things? Let's say Texas does not get, I guess Texas would be the only one, Texas does not get a bid to the college football playoff. How do you kind of look at the way things break down for you? Yeah, you mentioned it. We do have a selection on the Big 12 side, and then we have the third selection after the New Year's Six Uh, as we've had uh, over the last 10 years. And so when you look at uh, the Big 12, uh, there are a lot of teams uh, that are all right there in in where we think our selection will be. Um, Texas, been the cream of the crop all year, but they have a great opponent this weekend up in Dallas. 
as they take on Oklahoma State. Uh, should be a, a really fun matchup between those two. Uh, did not play each other this year with the new schedule. Yeah, it's weird. So uh, it'll, be, it'll be fun to see what they do. Playing to the chalk, you know, Texas wins that game. You know, we'll be really interested to see what, what happens in front of us. Oklahoma uh, had a great season, another 10-win season. Um, they will be an option for the, the, the games that are in front of us, which is uh, Alamo Bowl, in Orlando, uh, I'm sorry, Alamo Bowl in San Antonio, and the Pop Tarts Bowl. Ooh, how about that? Pop-Tarts in Orlando, um, they have an edible trophy. Apparently. They have an edible trophy. How about we, that? We, we, how are you going to top that, Fletch? I, I got to tell you, I, I I love the innovation. I'm sticking with the the cowboy hat. I think ours <laughs> I think ours works better. just fine for the, the brand. cowboy hat's better. But um, so Oklahoma's there. Oklahoma State may be there. Uh, then you start looking at the the, the rest of the of the. Of the conference, and you've got Kansas, you've got West Virginia, you've got Kansas State, you've got Iowa State, all sitting there as great options for us. Um, you know, as I th- see things unfold, a couple of those teams have been here a few times. Yep. Oklahoma State, Kansas State, a couple of those have not been there at all. Iowa State, West Virginia, Kansas. Um, you look at what Lance Leipold's done at, at Kansas, mm-hmm. uh, a renaissance there. The, the best two-year period that they've had in in well over a decade, mm-hmm. and um, so th- there's a lot of energy around them. Iowa State with a huge win in the in the snow fest in Farmageddon last weekend up in Kansas State. Um, Kansas State, the defending Big Twelve champs, yep. you know, and and the 2021 Tax Act Texas Bowl champions, uh, and and then West Virginia, who really under Neil Brown, fourth year, uh, really started to get it to click. So um, a lot of high powered offenses, a lot of entertainment there, and as we look at what might happen on the SEC side. Um, probably a lot of, of fun rivalries that you could see geographically and, and even back to old conference days if some of the opponents uh, are there that, that we think will be there. So. Let's address the elephant in the room, and that is coaching changes. Yeah, You've had those before. Um, LSU was going through a transition uh, coaching-wise when they came here a couple of years ago, I believe it was. Yep. Yeah, 21. When they took on Kansas State that night, does that play – how much of that plays a role in your decision, Fletch, to have a team? Now, I mean, the SEC might just put a team, i.e. Texas A&M. Now, they've got their coach for the future. I don't know if he would be the coach for a bowl game. I don't know how they would do that if A&M, in fact, is the team here. But in a decision-making side of the Big 12, does any kind of coaching change kind of play a role in any of this? I think at the end of the day, we've had a lot of those over the years, whether it be, you know, uh, Cliff Kingsbury's transition to tech, uh, you know, back in uh, 2012. You look at, uh, you mentioned Brian Kelly at LSU in 21. Uh, A&M is a team that that potentially could be in here, back here in Houston. Um, Mike Elko, the new head coach there, uh, obviously will want to hit the ground running. I don't anticipate he will coach. Right. But but just like um, the transfer portal um, has become part of the equation, (laughs) You know, coaching changes are part of the equation. At yeah. the end of the day, there's a body of work that that those teams have had over the course of the year. A um, lot, lot more about the front of the jersey than the back, if you will, yeah. and and certainly a factor that we consider. But at the end of the day, it's about putting together the best matchup, uh, and that that includes a lot of factors from geography to yep. history to rivalry to performance to coaches to players to. Um, you know, any other number of things. So at the end of the day, Johnny, it's a factor. We have to consider it, but um, it, it is something that we're familiar with, and we uh, will have the best matchup we can. Yeah, yeah, you've always dealt with it over the years. Like, you've not – it wouldn't be 
I don't know the right way of saying this, but it's not like it stands out like a sore thumb if there's been a coaching change. But um, I, I guess my question, last year's game was about as crazy a football game as I've ever, ever seen. And calling that game with Brett Dolan was incredible. Ole Miss um, and uh, Texas, Tech. Texas Tech. What an unbelievable football game. And I know that's obviously the biggest thing outside of the charitable work and, and all that goes into that side of it. But just the game that you want to get is just the best game possible. So if that ends up being, oh, I don't know, Iowa State and Auburn, two teams that I don't think have ever been. When, uh, Iowa State maybe is Iowa State maybe long ago. I Iowa don't State was here before we, we were got, involved in right, the game. Yep. Right. But Iowa State-Auburn ends up, it would be a great football game. I would imagine that's probably the biggest thing as opposed to would you have – Two rivals that have played each other, but you don't you get an average football game. But you have two teams that may have played, and they give you a gem like we got last year. Yeah, at the end of the day, Johnny, it's about putting the best thing together for our community. These events are so important and impactful, well beyond what happens here at NRG Stadium. He talked about the charity component with the Pelchin and all the funds and experiences that we're able to to create around the uh, the teams being here. Uh, the economic impact and the opportunity for those fans to come into our community and uh, to enjoy the incredible hospitality that we have and to to really be a part of the uh, the, the bowl season celebration that um, that the, the Tax Act Texas Bowl is, um, you know, we, that that's really uh, a, a big part of what's important to us. So um, at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do uh, is put together the best football matchup and one that will be very positively impacting on our community. So take me through Sunday. Sunday is decision day. That's when the playoff teams are announced. And then once those pieces are put into place, then all of a sudden all the bowl. Now, some of the championship games will determine, well, this team goes this bowl, this team goes this bowl. But for the most part, the playoff is going to trigger all those bowls of what they can do. What's Sunday like for you? And kind of when do you get to start making, when do you get the call to say, we're taking this team and it's going to be against this team? What's kind of Sunday yeah. like for you? Yeah, Sunday's fun. Sunday's, Sunday's fun day. It, yeah. it really is. I mean, first it starts out with watching how this college football playoff will unfold. And right. obviously Houston, NRG Stadium, our organization, uh, very much watching how that does unfold yes. as we are the host of this year's national right. championship That's game. Right. Um, then... Texans beat Broncos. Right. Got it. Got to make sure we get that one checked off. And, and really, um, you know, throughout the afternoon, we'll be working with both the Big 12 and the SEC, talking with our, our core leadership, talking with our partners at ESPN about different scenarios, seeing how things unfold. Um, I think early to mid-afternoon, you'll, you'll see announcements on both of the teams probably coming um, fairly close to each other, let's say in that 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock range. And then... You know, um, leading up to that, we're promoting as much as we can. We're trying to really drive our sales. As uh, We do go on sale on Sunday as well for, for single-game tickets, which um, you can get at taxacttexasbowl.com. But um, it, it's turning on the machine. You know, it's really working with our sales teams to connect with those groups that, that um, are, are part of the alumni of the schools that are here uh, to really um, – create uh, as much energy as we can with our marketing and, and our, our PR teams um, around what we know will be a very exciting matchup, really feed the fans uh, the information that they want. How can they be involved? What's going on that week? And, and where do I need to go to get it? So, um, you know, that that's really Sunday is, is about turning the machine back on. It, it is something that uh, obviously is, is a, a, a year-round endeavor, yeah. uh, something that we work on um, with – our conference partners with ESPN, with stakeholders in the community to try and um, 
really put together the best plan, but it turns on in a big, big way come Sunday. Um, and that will then lead into all the elements around site visits with the teams, um, working on on hospitality uh, and, and game day experiences. We have a great announcement coming tomorrow uh, around our, our uh, Carbach kickoff concert. Uh, free show for fans that we host um, the night before the game downtown. So uh, be on the lookout for that tomorrow uh, as we'll have another uh, awesome Texas country artist to, to headline that show. But it's just... It's really about doing uh, it's about doing great things for Houston, uh, and and really um, uh, that machine will turn on on Sunday, uh, right about twelve o'clock. I kind of liken it too for those that celebrate Christmas. It's like decorating the Christmas tree, like you do all this work to get all the ornaments and the lights and all that. That's what you guys do all year long, and then on Sunday you get to go put this fancy star right on the Christmas tree, the tree topper, and it's like. That's it. That's it's come to fruition. There it is. That's that moment. That's kind of the way I liken it, that you do so much work during the season or during the year that a lot of people don't see, Fletch. They think, ah, you pick the bowl teams and then you go play the game. It, there's so much more that goes into all the events that are set up, maintaining the relationships with both of the key conferences, the SEC and the Big 12. But you mentioned it. The college football playoff is coming here to Houston and – I've got to talk to somebody that can maybe find a sideline pass for that game. <laughs> so if anybody knows anybody, I'm, I'm looking right at you. If you know anybody, Fletch, you got to hook me up. But how much excitement is there, Fletch, around having that game on top of the fact that you have the Texas Bowl on the 27th, and then you have the, the playoff national championship game on Monday, January 8th? Yeah, look, Houston's earned this opportunity. Uh, it's been, uh, obviously, a decade-plus in the making. Uh, one of the great college football markets in the country, and um, we, we're very proud to be a partner in that event and, and be able to bring that to Houston to, right here to NRG Stadium the night of January 8th. A whole lot of activities leading up to that as well. Um, so I certainly, you know, uh, I certainly am intrigued by the possible matchups as you look at uh, the, mm -hmm. the next to last ranking that came out uh, earlier this week. And, um, you know, four great teams will have a chance to come to Houston. Um, we, we, as a community, have been working with our sports authority, uh, Houston First, our hospitality community, all the stakeholders to really um, show Houston is the premier destination for major sporting events in the country. We've hosted more than anybody else over the last decade, and and I don't anticipate this one will be any less spectacular, uh, but certainly a lot more fun given our our uh, our role in bringing it here and and um, and the opportunities to showcase college football. Um, it's going to be a big one right now Four teams. Uh, I believe Johnny, if I'm looking at it, only one of them has played for it in the uh, CFP area, uh, CFP era in the top four right now. And that's Georgia, the defending national champions. So yeah, we'll see how this weekend unfolds, but could have Michigan's been in the, in the semifinals. Got knocked out the last two years. Washington got in there in 2016, Florida state, Florida state. Florida State got beat by Oregon the very first year. Yep. In so 2014. None so. of them except Georgia have been to that championship game. I've kind of figured it out. I feel like there's a path for the University of Texas to be in this game, and they've got to be the biggest Louisville Cardinal fans <laughs> this weekend. They got to be cheering like crazy for Jack Plummer, Jamari Thrash, Jawar Jordan to go get it done against Florida State. And because to me, if and they also got a Georgia win. I think Georgia winning keeps Alabama out of it. And then Texas takes the place of Florida State. 
if Oregon beats Washington, Oregon takes Washington's spot. I think it's that simple. I think the winner of that Oregon-Washington game is in the playoff. Um, Agreed. If, I, if Iowa beats Michigan, the whole world will end. There's just no way that the world will continue if that happens. Well, look, you know, uh, I love that you can say it's that simple, and then all you did is put together 14 different scenarios. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, just that simple. It's that simple. It's just three <laughs> things. It's just three things. I mean, look, if you're Georgia, win and you're in. If you're Michigan, win and you're in. Washington, win and you're in. Florida, Florida State. State, win and you're in. It's the teams after that. Oregon beats Washington, Oregon's in. Yep. Um, if Texas wins, which ain't going to be easy against Oklahoma State, because Oklahoma State will just drag you into their muck and have you play their game. If Texas wins that, they got to have Louisville win. That's that's probably the easiest path for Texas to get to the top four. I think the I think that Big Twelve championship game on Saturday morning in in, in Arlington is is extremely fascinating. Um, you just mentioned it, two contrasting styles, right? And I think the biggest thing that I'll be watching around that is Texas has started really fast mm-hmm. and and then held on for dear life right. in a lot of their games. Oklahoma State has started really slow. Really slowly. And then turned it on big time in the second half of a lot of these games late. So very fascinating how that will play out. And also Mike Gundy and Oklahoma State getting a final shot at Texas in the final year of the Big 12, there's no coach I can imagine. No coach. I mean, the program Oklahoma, I'm sure, well, they're going together. Oklahoma State is going to want a piece of Texas in a big, big way. Yeah, I would imagine Mike Gundy is going to have them. There's no coach I think I would hate facing in that scenario more than Gundy. I think Gundy will have them absolutely, totally ready to go. And the last two Big 12 championship games have been unbelievable finishes. Yet, yet Oklahoma State Baylor that ended at the goal line, like the six inch line in 21, 22. Yep. You had K State and TCU that played one for the ages. That was just incredible uh, what they did. So we'll see what Texas and Oklahoma State has and how that affects everything with the Tax Act Texas Bowl. Fletch, where can fans start looking to get tickets, get the site? Um, where they need to get their tickets for the game. Yeah, taxacttexasbowl.com. Tickets go on sale this Sunday. So start your game day out right. Get a Texans win over the Broncos. Find out who's going to be here from the Big 12 and the SEC and then punch in taxacttexasbowl.com and you'll be set to go for a great holiday season, a great football, uh, a great great bowl season, a great holiday season, uh, and and, – uh, a lot of fun in store if, you, uh, if you're if you a college football fan. This is a great holiday gift. The stocking stuffer under the tree next to the menorah. However you celebrate it, this is the holiday season. This is a great gift to give. There's no question about it. Fletcher, the best man. Appreciate it, brother. Thank you, Johnny. Yes, this is going to be a whale of a weekend. There's no question. Oregon, Washington, Pac-12, Louisville, Florida State, uh, in the ACC, Big Ten, Michigan, Iowa, Georgia, Alabama, in the SEC, SMU taking out Tulane, the American, uh, Boise State, UNLV, and the Mountain West. I mean, you have some really good championship games. And, of course, Horns, Cowboys, last time, Big 12 championship in Arlington. That kicks it off on Saturday. But you got two games on Friday, including Oregon-Washington in the Pac-12, which is going to be incredibly important. Speaking of incredibly important, as Fletch pointed out, Sunday's incredibly important here at NRG Stadium. Broncos v. Texans. What's your injury report look like? Let's go around the NFL. We'll do that to finish up next on Texans All Access. We got one final segment in this edition of Texans All Access on a wonderful Wednesday. Hopefully it stays wonderful. It sounds like it's going to pour. 
storms in the area. We're going to get a lot of rain over the next, uh, I don't know, it sounds like 24 to 36 hours. But hopefully by Sunday, it will be clear so we can get to NRG Stadium and watch the Texans take on the Denver Broncos in a third straight home game. Now, each and every Wednesday, we've sort of been sitting on pins and needles waiting to see, like, oh, man, who's going to be on the injury report? Well, I don't have great news, I think. I mean, we'll see. It's just Wednesday. But we definitely have to be paying attention for the rest of the week. So let's discuss what's on the injury report. You got Malik Collins, not injury-related personal day. Robert Woods, not injury-related rest. So my guess is those two more than likely will be okay by Thursday, Friday, ready to go. Laramie Tunsil, dealing with a knee issue. He is typically Wednesdays is a day he takes as a rest the knee, rest day, and then gets back to work on the field Thursday and Friday. So fingers crossed that happens again. Jimmy Ward has been dealing with the hamstring. He was also a DNP today, dealing with the hamstring. Also with the hamstring, oh boy, Dalton Schultz. Hate seeing that. So two hamstrings, Dalton Schultz just popping up this week. Jimmy Ward has been on for a couple of weeks. Sheldon Rankins dealing with the elbow. Uh, which we talked about during the broadcast. I saw him go off the field at one point, really holding that right elbow, came out with a brace uh, and played through it, fought through it. Um, but he's definitely one to keep an eye on. George Fant, a right tackle, dealing with a hip issue. So hopefully he's going to be able to go. But here's a, a big one from one of the smallest Texans. Tank Dell, dealing with a calf issue. Now, D'Amico was asked about that at his press conference, and he said he thought that Tank would be ready to go. But something you got to obviously monitor if guys are DMPs. So, your full list of DMPs. Malik Collins, Tank Dell, George Fant, Sheldon Rankins, Dalton Schultz, Larry Tunsil, Jimmy Ward, Robert Woods. All of them huge contributors for this team. Now, there is some good news. Noah Brown was back today in a limited capacity. So, that's good news. Noah dealing with that knee issue uh, after the Bengals game. Missed the last two games. Jake Hansen was also back in a limited capacity. They were both inactive due to the injuries. Uh, Jake dealing with a hamstring and a hand issue. Full participant, C.J. Stroud, dealing with a thigh. C.J. took a couple shots. Um, There was one that happened in the first half when the Jaguars ran a beautiful stunt. And Josh Allen hit C.J. kind of low and awkward. And I don't know if that's what, uh, you know, was bothering him in the second half when he kind of got up slow, was limping a little bit. But he was a full participant in practice. And that's a good sign. But we've got to protect seven uh, for everything that we've got. Now, on the Broncos' side, before we get to some other Texans news, Jerry Judy, wide receiver, didn't participate in practice today because of a groin. The limited participants, Will Lutz, Marvin Mims, two explosive receivers in the limited DMP. Full participants, Baron Browning and Brandon Johnson. So, very light on the Broncos' side from an injury standpoint. Now, speaking of injuries, Titus Howard, it appears that his season is going to be over because he went on the injured reserve list. The Texans can only bring one back, and it appears that would be kind of fair, Baron, and it doesn't appear that Titus would be ready anytime soon. So Titus Howard goes on IR. The Texans have waived the following player, Shaquille Griffin. That was made official today. Now, I know there's been a lot of consternation and talk about it. I think one thing that people haven't asked about is, you know, does Shaq ask for it? Don't know. Just, it's something totally to consider. Texans 
sign the following player, Desmond King, to the active roster. So Desmond making that big play down on the goal line. We'll see if he plays a bigger role this week against the Broncos. Desmond Perryman is back to the active roster. Matt Amendola, we talked about it the other day, was waived, but he's brought back to the practice squad, as was Garrett Wallow, brought back to the practice squad, and Jared Dokes was released from the practice squad. So it was a transaction kind of day uh, on Wednesday, but hopefully we got it all clear, get some guys back in practice on Thursday, and start rocking and getting ready for Sunday against the Denver Broncos. But unfortunate news about Titus uh, and Shaq Griffin, and we'll see what all that leads to and how the Texans piece this thing all together on Sunday against a very hot football team. We'll be back tomorrow with the general John McClain right here from 6 to 7 right before Seahawks and Cowboys take the airwaves right here on Sports Radio 610. Appreciate you being with me. We'll see you next time. And as always, go Texans.